So we're opening up to Revelation chapter 20. I actually gave Miss uh, Sister Marilyn a different passage of Scripture this week, but that's okay. It still takes us to the same place. As I was going through the studies, I thought, well, you know what? Revelation chapter 20 would be a better passage for what we're doing today. We continue in our series of church history. We're in the postmodern period. And uh, in the postmodern period, we're, this is the last of uh, probably what we'll cover because we're in the modern times. Um, I thought, I, before I read, though, I would like to mention, um, if you've noticed, if you have like Amazon Prime and you go through some of the, like the television shows that they have, the series that are up there, um, you may have noticed something like this, that Many of the very popular television shows might be on Netflix as well or some of the other USA, whatever these channels are. Some of the more popular television shows today are of villains or criminals as the um, protagonist, as the, the hero of the story. It reminds me of the passage of the Scripture in Isaiah chapter 5 that says, Woe to them who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. In 1972, a uh, movie based upon a book became an Academy Award winner. It was called The Godfather, whereas a mafia crime boss was the hero of the movie. And then the next year, I think the next, the part two won an Academy Award likewise. But we see that shift as it slowly goes into, you know, what we have today, the postmodern period where everything, there's no absolute truth. It's very relative. What's good for you might not be good for me, but I'm okay, you're okay. That's postmodernity. That's where we are. And it is at a fever pitch. All the popular shows are of wicked people as being good, and the good people, supposedly good people, law enforcement, they're corrupt. And so there's nothing good, really redeemable in them. It glorifies sin, and it takes that which is supposed to represent goodness, law, and order is wicked. So it's just permeated with wickedness. And uh, I just thought, wow, a perusal through the television shows and looking at their uh, whereas in the even to the early 2000s, many of the popular shows were like crime dramas where the police are the good guys. That's no longer, not really. Um, uh, if they do have them, one that we had watched for a little while was this uh, Chicago PD, but the cops were still crooked. <laughs> it's crazy. So... Um, yes, ma'am. Like oh, pastors. Oh, yeah. I, I wear that with a badge of honor. <laughs> Try to live up to the hype. <laughs> they make pastors look like idiots. I, I mean, real, real godly men. And the ones that they don't make look like idiots are the ones that are unscriptural. The guys that don't know the Bible. Oh, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness. Yeah. <laughs> The, the crooked guys that sound like Edward G. Robinson, you know. Yeah, yeah, that Jesus guy, that Jesus fellow. <laughs> anyway, uh, 
Revelation chapter 20, it begins, oddly enough, in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Mag... Wait a minute. That's a different chapter 20. That's John chapter 20, written by the same author. Oh, boy. Sorry about that. I know. I got my place right. Calm down, calm down. I'm reading now. Verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain, verse 2, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, 3, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while, 4, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast on its image and had not yet received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, five. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Six, uh, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Seven, and when the thousand years are ended... Satan will be released from his prison, eight, and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, nine. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, ten. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Eleven, then I saw a great white throne. Uh, Eleven, then I saw a great white throne. And uh, while uh, him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found on them. Twelve. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Thirteen. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Fourteen. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake uh, the lake of fire. Fifteen. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20, it's the word of the Lord, and I'll most certainly add his abundant blessing to the reading of his holy truth. Christianity and postmodern modernism, part four, and we're looking at four end time views. It's basically a parenthesis, because if you remember from last week, uh, what we had looked at was uh, fundamentalism and neo-fundamentalism, especially the King James only group, whereas... 
uh, and not just the King James only, but neo-fundamentalists, the new fundamentalists of today, that they become such separatists that even your end times view will be a deciding factor on whether you can fellowship or not, which I think is just silly for something that has not yet happened. The the difficulty that we have with that just in it in and of itself is that in even the Lord Jesus' first coming, the the religious leaders who were responsible for identifying the Lord Jesus, who knew the scriptures, failed to see him, and the disciples whom he called were confused and misunderstood, even to the point that in Remember that after his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, now they see the risen Lord, that before the Lord ascends into heaven in Acts chapter 1, they say to him, are you at this time going to restore Israel? It's not for you to know the times of the seasons. They still had a misunderstanding. And then 10 days later, after the Lord's ascension, on the day of Pentecost, the Monday when they're in the temple, the Holy Spirit falls upon them and Peter preaches that in Acts chapter 2, the Peter preaches that wonderful message um, presenting the, the blessed gospel of the Lord temple-wide, through the whole temple as they see this magnificent thing going on, which is where they would be on the day of Pentecost. They weren't in the upper room as some, as you know, we, we've gone over that again and again, and even when we were in Acts, we... Uh, uh, really identified that the house that they were in was the house of the Lord. And uh, uh, so <clears throat> Revelation 20 ends up actually being the real focal point for understanding just briefly these four views. And I have them for you in this order. Uh, I wrestled with this. I prayed about this. I asked the Lord, what order should I talk about these? Because they all have difficulties. There are four basic views, and if I could use the proverb, there are four basic views, yay five, that are going on today. And the fifth view is this thing called full preterism, um, which isn't really a view of end times, but it fits for the postmodern period. And I'll, we'll mention that briefly at the end. Postmillennial, amillennial, dispensational, premillennial, and historical premillennial oral also might be called post-tribulational. Um, the post-tribulational, post-tribulational millennial uh, view. First, the post-millennial. It's defined as a view of a thousand years from Revelation 20 verses 4 through 6 as a non-literal long era of time described as the quote-unquote golden age of Christianity. They actually use that, the golden age of Christianity. Uh, that Christ's return will come personally and visibly after the church has ushered in a word of righteousness, a world of righteousness, with Christ as uh, one enthroned in heaven, reigning in His people on earth. This is the post-millennial view. Um, it really gained ground in 1658 with the Savoy, De uh, the Savoy Declaration. Uh, if you reach back some, what was it, seven months when we were six or seven months when we were, ago when we were in the uh, in the era, era of the Puritans in England, the Savoy Declaration is that confession of faith by the Congregationalists. John Owen being one of the primary 
uh, men, John Owen in Scotland, being one of the primary men that put together the Savoy Declaration. And it's, uh, it's one of the earliest creedal statements of post-millennial eschatology. Um, eschatology being the study of end times or end last things. It, it says this quote in the Savoy Declaration, As the Lord in his care and love towards his church hath in his infinite wise providence exercised it with great variety in all ages for the good of them that love him and his own glory. So according to his promise, we expect that in the latter days, Antichrist being destroyed, the Jews called, and the adversaries of the kingdom of his dear son broken, uh, the churches of Christ being enlarged and edified through a free and plentiful communication of light and grace, shall enjoy in this world a more quiet, peaceable, and glorious condition than they have enjoyed, end quote. Now, post-millennialism is, is, is very optimistic. It, it, it would seem this is the one that we probably want to come to pass, but the scriptures don't bear it out. And we'll see the difficulties that it has um, in a different section. We'll just discuss the difficulties of all of them when we get through those. But it does. I mean, who doesn't want to see the gospel uh, reign so supremely in our lives to where it ushers in even the salvation of unbelieving Jews, the restoration of uh, the world so uh, through the truth of the gospel of Christ and Him crucified? Yeah, that's... Very optimistic, but as I said, the scriptures don't bear that out for Christ's suffering church. <clears throat> Could you read that again? I will, uh, yeah. I'll read it again. As the Lord in his care and love towards his church hath in his infinite wise providence exercised it with great variety in all ages for the good of them that love him and his own glory so according to his promise, we expect that in the latter days, Antichrist being destroyed, the Jews called, and the adversaries of the kingdom of his dear son broken, the church of Christ being enlarged and edified through a free and plentiful communication of light and grace, shall enjoy in this world a more quiet, peaceable, and glorious condition than they have enjoyed." End quote. John Owen, John, yeah, I was going to say John Owen. John Owen is, was at that day, he was a contemporary with John Bunyan, and he was considered the premier theologian in the world in that day. And that's what he had written. Apparently he had missed uh, uh, things like in Matthew 25. Well, what wasn't in that is no return of Christ to earth, correct? Um, it, no, it is. It's at the end of ushering in the age. That wasn't in that statement uh, that the Lord Jesus comes, but it is part of the post-millennial view that the Lord Jesus will return once the church has ushered in the golden age. No wonder I never liked John Owen. <laughs> well, one of the other reasons for some people not to like John Owen is that um, he was so educated, and we, we spoke on this a little bit when we were in the days of the Puritans. He was so educated that few people could understand him. He was, he was, not, uh, he, he, he was not like, uh, you know, down to earth when his, in his writings. My question is, um, how is this different from, or is it the same, 
as the dominionism that we see today that's so popular. That's it. That's the domin- same, that same would be uh, dominion theology would come forth from post-millennialism. And then, so... Dominion there, theology is that the church will reign, or the church does reign and the church will reign. And through the truth of the gospel, when we imp- uh, apply the gospel to others, it will become... So in this gospel, so in this teaching, one. where does the um, millennium come in? Um, the millennium is allegorical in the post-millennial view. Uh, oh. It takes place, but it uh, it actually takes place in the church on earth. So it is a church on earth, and it is somewhat literal, but it it, it uh, ushers in a golden age. It's it's very positive and very uh, very optimistic. Yeah. However, scriptures don't square with it. Yeah, I know. Okay, thank and, you. And I'll discuss those areas in, in a moment. Uh, the the progenitors of it, the most uh, the, the the first one is John Owen, sixteen sixteen to sixteen eighty three. Jonathan, they were congregationalists, like a like we are as a Baptist church. We're congregational. Uh, we believe in the priesthood of believers, and so every believer should have a say. Um, Every believer that, you know, as as far as being a member of the church should have a say in the direction of our local body of believers. And uh, so uh, Jonathan Edwards was a Congregationalist, and uh, we all know Jonathan Edwards from this, uh, who was born in 1703, died in 1758, uh, preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, He was post-millennial. B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, we talked about just a couple a month or a month and a half or so ago, when we were looking at modernism in the early nineteenth century, Presbyterian minister um, who was uh, president of Princeton uh, Princeton Seminary, he was uh, he was post millennial, born in eighteen fifty one, died in nineteen twenty one. Lorraine Bettner, uh, some of you might run across that name. He was a theologian that uh, uh, was born in nineteen oh one, died in ni- uh, died in nineteen ninety. Wrote several books, but he was optimistically post-millennial as well. And one of the key names in this is a guy named uh, R.J. Rushdooney. Rusas, that's R-O-U-S-A-S, John, J-O-H-N, Rushdooney, born in 1916, died in 2001. Whereas uh, some of their emphasis is in Christian ethics. Some of their great emphases is in Christian ethics. In other words, that our gospel... Uh, the gospel of our salvation should touch every area of our lives, and it should. However, they push it to an extreme, suggesting that that we can legislate morality, and we can't. Uh, the Bible's clear on that. If we were able to, the law would have done that in the Old Testament, but it couldn't. The, and, and the New Testament explains that the Old Testament, Galatians is one book that presents that. Amillennial is the next one, which is an unfortunate title. Amillennialism, um, it believes in a millennium. Same as postmillennials believe that there, it's many of the things are allegorical, but there will be a reign on the earth uh, through the church. Amillennialism is the one with the least. It's the dog with the least fleas. It has the least difficulties because it's the simplest. Uh, the church goes through this period of time. It is a church that is suffering. Jesus is uh, ruling and reigning upon the throne. But at the end, 
Jesus comes, and then it's the new heaven and the new earth. That's it in its simplicity. It's also called kilogorism because it takes the two Greek words kilia, which means thousand, and it takes the word allegoria, which means allegory, and it allegorizes the or spiritualizes the thousand-year reign, which it has every right to do because if in Revelation chapter 20, the word thousand that we see every time, the Greek word kilia, doesn't have a one in front of it. it doesn't, and, and that's unusual in Greek because if you have a number, it should be specified. If you have a hundred, it's not just a hundred, it's 100, 200, 300, so forth. A thousand, same thing. It should have a one in front of it, but it doesn't. So they just say a thousand years. Why isn't it specified? Well, I have, my, I have uh, some answers to that, but I'll get to that in a minute. It hold, uh, amillennial, amillennialism holds an allegorical belief of Christ's reign upon earth prior to the Lord's return and final judgment. Puritan adherents, um, they presented this as Christ's kingdom that is already slash not yet. We are, and, and we actually apply many of those principles, and I do in my preaching, because there is that reality. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, it says that we are seated together with Christ in heavenly places in Christ. Very redundant, but it's, it's a truth that though he is in heaven and ruling and reigning in our lives, we're, though, and we're, though we're not in heaven, we are seated. It doesn't say we will be seated, that we are seated. So there's that reality there. And this is what many of the Puritan Presbyterians, um, the uh, Anglican Church, which later became the Methodist Church, uh, even Methodist churches today, many of them are all millennial. That the Lord brings about the, the, his, the truth of his kingdom through the gospel, and then uh, at the end, then the Lord comes, and then it's the new heaven and new earth. This uh, most of all millennialism uh, started with uh, Augustine. He wrote a book called uh, the Confessions of Saint Augustine, but he also wrote another one, a little less po- a little less famous, but it was called The City of God. And there he allegorizes or spiritualizes the truth of Christ's kingdom upon earth. Uh, he lived from thir- 354 to 430, and we covered his life you know, probably about a year ago, I think now. Martin Luther was another one who was amillennial. Uh, the Lutherans are amillennial. Uh, Martin Luther, of course, born in 1483, died in 1546, the, one of the key people in the Reformation, 1519. And uh, the, uh, let's see, where are we? Oh, yeah, uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin. Um, kind of the father of the Presbyterian and Reformed churches. He's uh, born in 1509, died in 1564. He was amillennial. Then there's a a Presbyterian who just passed away in 2017, uh, R.C. Sproul, Robert Charles Sproul. As a Presbyterian, the uh, founder of Ligonier Ministries, just passed away recently, very popular author. Um, born in 1939, p- passed away 2017. He was on millennial, and then there's um, a person who wrote a book, a case for case, a case for all millennialism, which is a, a very well written book. I don't have any copies of it anymore. Um, I left them in Alabama, but it's worth reading to see from an all millennialist what the all millennial view is, and. Uh, 
I actually come from that kind of background. Reformed Baptists, many Reformed Baptists are amillennial. Although I have had dealings with dispensational premillennialism um, in in the past. The uh, uh, anyway, Kim Riddlebar is still alive. Um, he was born in 1954, and his book is available online. Which leads us to the dog with the most fleas, because it's the most complicated. Dispensational premillennialism. Dispensational premillennialism even has its has um, many. Also, all these four basic views they have their variations depending on whom you are talking to and uh, who is developing the theology and so forth. Dispensational premillennialism generally believes that Israel and the church are, are distinct entities with different destinies. It also widely, widely holds to the appearance of Christ before a seven-year worldwide tribulation, whereas the church is raptured prior to this tribulation in order to facilitate the continued Old Testament promises to Israel by salvation through the Messiah. This worldwide tribulation will be followed by the physical return of Christ with his saints, which will in turn mark the beginning of a literal thousand-year reign upon the earth. And I'm going to emphasize with dispensational premillennialism, literal. Because they all do. See, uh, the, the fellows there, it, it, it's modern dispensational premillennialism started with a fellow named John Nelson Darby, uh, born in 1800, died in 1882. He was one of the Plymouth, Plymouth Brethren. I can't speak today. And some of you are going, today? <laughs> What's changed? Um, but I'm ha- having a little trouble speaking. I think I, um, my medication was on a roller coaster this week. um, Anyway, John Nelson Darby, Plymouth Brethren, um, uh, George Mueller, whom we'll talk about in just a little bit, who is a historical pre-mill. George Mueller was part of the, he knew John Nelson Darby was part of the Plymouth Brethren, but he broke off because he disagreed um, as far as the, um, you know, the church going through the tribulation. He says the Antichrist will be revealed, and look, he, you know, he, said, no, i got to depart. But he's the one who first formulated pretty much dispensational, modern dispensational premillennialism, and later on it was uh, more refined by a fellow named Cyrus Ingram, uh, or excuse me, Cyrus uh, Ingerson Schofield and Lewis Berry Chafer. Um C.I. Schofield, uh, he's known for the Schofield Reference Bible and several commentaries, especially concerning dispensational theology and dispensational eschatology, the study of last things. C.I. Schofield was born in 1843, and he died in 1921. Um, Lewis Berry Schaefer, who is a theologian, also a, a dispensational premillennialist, Lewis Berry Schaefer uh, he was born in 1871 and died in 1952. He has a very popular um, systematic theology that was written that is popular with dispensational theologians. Um, a fella, even though I might have have it, in, I think I have it in the uh, wrong order because I was trying to put it in birth order. 
J. Dwight Pentecost is the J stands for John. John Dwight Pentecost, born in 1915, died in 2014, wrote a book, Things to Come. He wrote some, several other books, but Things to Come was probably his premier book concerning the end times. And, um, okay, uh, concerning the end times. And uh, he uh, uh, he identified several several of the the key points and really filled in a lot where C.I. Schofield didn't even address certain questions that were in dispensational premillennialism. Um, others, others who are, were quite popular in that field, Hal Lindsey, who was born in 1929, still alive today, wrote a book in the 70s called The Late Great Planet Earth. Uh, wrote several books, actually, and I've read several of them over the years. Uh, but the late great planet Earth explains um, certain things that uh, that are <laughs> in dispensational theology, and some people believe them, and and others mm, say, "Oh, it sounds kind of interesting." Uh, one of the things that I remember distinctly from the late great planet Earth was that in Revelation nine, he described the locusts that come forth with uh, you know faces. Faces like men, hair like women, teeth like lions, and you know they. Uh, he said that those are Russian helicopter gunships. Now remember, I said the dispensational theology stresses literalism, but they allegorize the things that are necessary for them. So I wouldn't lump Hal Lindsey in with those other people. He's way off the wall. Um. Well, he's one of them in the group. And remember, dispensational premillennialism, it also has a progressive dispensationalism. For the next person that I would mention is John MacArthur, born in 1939. I thought he might be historical premill, but he is definitely in solidly in the dispensational camp. In 2007, he wrote a book called um, uh, The Time is Near. Uh, John MacArthur explains the book of Revelation. Uh, I was going to bring it today. I actually have a copy of it, and it is solidly dispensational with all the charts and whatnot. Um, as he, it's a, it was a primary, primary, um, a premier and primary book to his what would later become his um, his uh, commentary for the book of Revelation. Uh, he's solidly in that camp, and, um, and and Phil Johnson, whom I thought was, because he's so big on Spurgeon, I thought he was historical pre-mill, but he's not. He is dispensational, so dispensational that in 2017, he refused to have, uh, because, uh, because he was a part of not just Grace Community Church, but also, and Grace to You, um, a radio ministry bar- broadcast, but he refused to the master seminary he refused a master seminary graduate who is historical premillennial to come and present the view at the master seminary they become that fundamental that if you don't believe dispensationalism you can't come on over which in that in that particular case i i, I happened to read up on it as i was studying this week and i went oh i didn't know about that that's somewhat interesting um that was in 2017 Ray Comfort, the evangelist from New Zealand, in 19, who was born in 1949, still alive today, wrote Hell's Best Kept Secret, and uh, which I think was originally titled God Doesn't Believe in Atheists. 
you know, he's a very popular evangelist as far as how he presents the, the gospel. He's, a, he's dispensational. Um, the person that works also works with him is that uh, fellow who is uh, on, he was a television actor, uh, Kirk Cameron. He works along the, the Living Waters ministry with Ray Comfort, and they do evangelism. And, uh, and in fact, I think Kirk Cameron was in one of those Left Behind movies, which it was in all of them. I, I, hadn't, I, hadn't, seen, I hadn't seen any, uh, I, but I don't know, 15 minutes of one of them. I read the first book, and I refused to read the rest. Uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins sadly, the thing that was left behind in those books was the gospel. Um, just, yikes. So, there leads us to historical premillennialism. That is the old, has its oldest origins. Historical premillennialism is, is that as, uh, that the church will go through a period of time um, that there will be a revival towards the end uh, through a greater, tr- great tribulation that will um, awaken many Jews, and then at that particular time, the church will be raptured, and uh, uh, the dead in Christ will rise first, and the church will be raptured, meeting them in the air, and then will be the final judgment. Um, that is historical premillennialism. Uh, the adherents to it were Papias. Papias, uh, born in six uh, in sixty A.D., died in one hundred thirty A.D. He was a disciple of John the author of Revelation and the Gospel of John, um, a contemporary. He was the uh, bishop of uh, Hierapolis, and uh, where Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. And both of those were uh, men were contemporaries uh, and disciples of John. But Papias um, was um, quoted by, we only have fragments of Papias, but he was quoted by another church, early church father, Irenaeus, and uh, quoted by him as uh, being believing on this uh, this uh, historical pre-mill or post-tribulational millennialism. Justin Martyr, born in 100 A.D., died in 165 A.D. He was a proponent for historical pre-millennialism. Uh, John Bunyan, um, though it doesn't state outright, if you read all of his writings, you'll you'll come to the conclusion that he believed in the um in a uh historical pre historical premillennialism excuse me i i think in my definition i described it like all millennialism you go through the tribulation you know, the church is raptured and the and the saints return and then there is a millennial kingdom on earth the Lord comes before that he sets up his kingdom upon the millennial reign and then there'll be the final resurrection and judgment. Um, John Gill, a predecessor to Charles Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, born in 1697, died in 1771. He is a historical pre-mill. George Miller, the the the, the minister of Bristol, George Mueller of Bristol, who opened up all those orphanages, a great man of prayer, died, uh, born in 1805, Died in 1898. He was post. He's he was post or excuse me. He was historical post tribulational millennial, um, or historical pre mill. Uh, he he broke with John Nelson Darby as I mentioned before. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was historical pre millennial. Born in 1834, died in 1892. 
D.A. Carson, Donald Arthur Carson, still alive today, born in 1946. He's historical pre-mill. Uh, John Piper, pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in, uh, it's in Minnesota, isn't it? Um, anyway, it's up north somewhere. John Piper wrote several books, born in 1946 also, um, still alive today. He is, uh, he is pastor, uh, he doesn't pastor any longer. I think he's pastor emeritus there at Bethlehem Baptist Church, but he's historical pre-mill. And Al Moeller, Albert Moeller, born in 1959, he has uh, been for the past at least 15, maybe 20 years, he's the president of Southern Seminary um, in Louisville, Kentucky for the Southern Baptists, and very influential, uh, apparently tweets things, so he's involved in with what's going on politically, but he's a Southern Baptist with some with some influence. He's a um, Reformed Baptist. He's historical pre-mill. All of them have their difficulties. In each millennial view, there are difficulties. The post-millennial view, and I have listed them there for you. Then um, this is probably where most of the questions come up, so if we have to take this into a part two, we, we can. Uh, the time for the beginning of where the post-millennial is, where's this golden age? There are some say that it's already happened. There are some say that it is yet to come. If it's already happened, what a... The, the golden age is pretty tarnished, I'd have to say, if it's already happened. If it if it hasn't yet, that's where we come across the problems. What's the time for the beginning or when it has begun? That's that's the first problem. Number two, does the New Testament anticipate a future Christianized world? Matthew twenty four verses thirty seven to thirty nine says, "Well, the time coming before the Lord will be as in the days of Noah." <laughs> and and when I go back to Genesis chapter six, it says that every thought and intent of the uh, every thought and intent of man's heart was only evil continually. Well, that doesn't sound very golden to me as far as the gospel and the golden age. So that's a difficulty. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, that men will wax worse and worse. Um, the third one, the identity of the church as suffering that we see in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, and also Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. Um, even even individually in Second uh, Timothy two verse two endure or two verse three endure hardship hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We're at war, the church militant, and we're a suffering church. Matthew chapter five that that if we're persecuted for Christ's sake, blessed are you. So hmm, identifying the church as a suffering church doesn't seem to work out in the post millennial view. Uh, or it's, at least it's a difficulty, and the questions aren't really asked answered by postmillennialists. They don't even address the question or to to give an answer. For the most part, um, how to how, how do you pray for this golden age to appear? If you have Titus chapter two verses eleven through thirteen, that the grace of God has appeared unto all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust that we look for in verse 13, that we look for the blessed appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do you, do you pray for the, if you're praying for the golden age to come, then, then you wouldn't be praying for Christ to come to fix things. We see the things that are going on around us and we pray, come Lord Jesus, even at the end of Revelation chapter 20, even so, <laughs> come Lord Jesus. And we even add, come soon Lord Jesus, because 
It's just getting worse and worse. Um, five, if the beasts and antichrists are symbols or, or are systems and not actual personalities from Revelation chapter 13, then casting them into the lake of fire in Revelation 20 verse 10 is problematic. You don't cast the system into the lake of fire. There needs to be somebody who's set up as a personality that at least runs them, a person that is identified uh, as well. So it's got some problems in post-millennial. As, since amillennialism is the simplest, it has the least amount of problems, but it does have problems and it does have some major problems. One of them, the first one, is Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 10, and Isaiah chapter 65, verses 17 through 25. They can't be, they're, you either, they're, they can't be reconciled because the portions that, that are in them when it speaks of, you know, a child will die a hundred years, and an old man, if, if an adult is a hundred years old and he dies, that he's, the, 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 the wickedness that is going on and that the sheep shall lie down with the lamb and the lion shall eat fodder like a, or straw like an ox. The, there's, a, there's a change there. So if you allegorize one, you've got to allegorize everything if you spiritualize everything. And the problem with, the, with that is, is that, uh, the, the problem with that is, is that you, know, you can't have them both. So a child dying at 100 becomes a problem if you interpret it literally. If you ter- interpret it spiritually, then you have a problem with, the, with the, uh, the lions and the tigers and the bears. Oh my. So that becomes, that becomes a problem. Number two, the binding of Satan in Revelation 20 verses 1 and 2 is problematic. Uh, because Second Corinthians chapter four verses uh, verse four, where it says that Satan is the god of this world and blinds the eyes of those who uh, who do not believe, and also in First Peter chapter five verse eight, where it says that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So if he is bound, uh, if he is bound in the all millennial scheme of things, we got some difficulties reconciling the scripture. Number three, the loosing of Satan uh, in Revelation 20, verse 3, then becomes problematic as well. They go hand in hand, number two and number three. And these are actually little, little smaller problems, not littler, because littler is harder to say. They're smaller problems than what we see in postmillennialism, but it's still problematic because those things go hand in hand. And then the same difficulty um, as in the post-mill number five. Post-mill number five is if the beasts and antichrists are systems and not personalities, then casting them in the lake of fire is a, becomes a difficulty with that passage of Scripture. How do you interpret that? So all millennialism still has its, has its little uh, idiosyncrasies, idiosyncrasies there. Dispensational premillennialism. It's it's got inconsistent literalism because as they say it must be interpreted literally and then they allegorize like in Revelation chapter four. John is called up in Revelation chapter four into heaven, but they say that that is a type. John represents the church and it's the type of the church. Well, you just spiritualized it. Revelation chapter one verse one in the King James version, the English Standard Version, unfortunately, doesn't take the Greek word. Um, uh, can't remember the Greek word, but it's the one that's translated, um, it's the one word that's translated signified, set in signs. 
It's in the King James Version, it's in the New King James Version, but it's not in the English Standard Version. But the, ver- the, the very first verse, he tells us what it's about, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. It's about Jesus. And then he set it into the signs and gave to his servant John. He already tells us that it's allegor- there's much allegory in here because it's, it, it's significant because it's set in signs. But we're supposed to interpret it literally. But then we allegorize and have you know, helicopter gunships in Revelation 9 <laughs> and, and Russian tanks, which today it actually seems like, hmm, that could be a reality. Maybe, uh, although they're losing <laughs> the battle against Ukraine. Um, number two, the rigid insistence upon separate purposes, people, and destinies of Israel and the church. Whereas Acts chapter 28, verse 20 Paul very emphatically states when he's giving his defense um, to uh, uh, Agrippa, he's giving his defense that says that the gospel is the hope of Israel. So, um, so that becomes there becomes a difficulty there. Romans nine verse six it says uh, speaks of that not all Israel is Israel. In Galatians chapter six verse sixteen, speaking of the people of God, uh, both Jews and Gentiles that we are called, the the church is called the Israel of God. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles. Um, Three, restoration of temple animal sacrifices in the millennium should disgust you. If, If it says that then therefore the precious blood of Jesus Christ is insufficient. Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 11 through 14 are very clear about that, that his sacrifice is made once for all. And there's no need for those sacrifices. So if they build a temple, yeah, okay, big deal. That, that's sinful people making a temple. But having a temple reign in the millennium with Jesus Christ ruling and reigning and then bringing animal sacrifices, that sounds like a blight to his sacrifice. It sounds like an offense to the precious blood of Jesus that saved you and me. That, to me, is just, that should be dealt with, at least in this this eschatology definitely um they have four stages of first of the four stages of the resurrection i says first resurrection but there's yeah there's four stages of the first resurrection because number five christ is not now seated upon his throne which makes peter's message in acts chapter 2 verse 30 a difficulty to reconcile and also that that he is ruling and reigning upon the throne in Revelation chapter five verse thirteen. Um, but that would be in the dispensational theology, since the church is already raptured. It does make it still a difficulty because he's ruling and reigning on the throne, but he's only appeared in order to rapture the church, but it isn't his second coming yet. So that becomes a difficulty. Here's another one, number six. Um, and I haven't, I, I actually just put this in here myself because 144,000 Jewish evangelists are literally 144,000. If you look into it, that's where you have the number 12,000 of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 of the tribe of Levi. Dan is missing, but you come up with 144,000, but the word for thousand, Kilia, is plural. And so it's uh, 12 thousands, 12 thousands. Now, as somebody who believes in the sovereign grace of God and salvation, I don't have any problem. Brother Mike and I discussed this too. He doesn't have any problem that if the church is raptured, that the Lord will save them by his grace somehow. 
And then they can go ahead and evangelize these as quote-unquote Jewish evangelists. But it's not. If, see, if you take it literally and you look at it from the Greek, you find out, oh, wait a minute. It's not just 144,000. It's 144,000s, plural. Well, how many is that? I don't know. Well, it's, it's, the, it's the Lord. It doesn't have, it's, by making it plural, it just makes it ambiguous. So it can't be taken totally literally. Um, number seven, if the rapture is not the same as the second coming, how does Christ's return become imminent? <laughs> we are looking for the imminent return. Like even in our statement of faith, we're looking for the personal because Jesus Christ as a person, his actual person and not spiritual, it's visible, every eye shall see him, and it is imminent. We don't know when, we just know it's coming. And I might even add, we don't really know how as we've been going through this. First um, Thessalonians 4.15 speaks of this. Verse 8, no post-millennial resurrection is addressed. What happens at the end of the millennium? But that's a problem with some of these others as well. Historical premill has its problem. The entire premillennial uh, pre position, both historic and dispensational, rests upon the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. If there is a thousand-year separation between the resurrection of the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead, then the view stands above the rest. If not, its greatest strength is its, is its ultimate weakness. In other words, that if, by not addressing this resurrection, which the Bible doesn't, you know they're not addressing the problem because the Bible doesn't speak of uh, other than in Revelation. At if you take the latest date, ninety six A.D., take the earliest date, ninety one A.D., whereas Jesus and the apostles don't even mention stages of resurrection or more than one resurrection until ninety six A.D. How do you get that out of the whole of the Bible, even from the Old Testament? You you don't, and it's not addressed. But let me say this. I'm going to skip down because we're running late. I'm going to say this at the very bottom, determining a faithful biblical response. I believe this is by design. It forces us to keep our focus and attention upon Jesus, upon his atoning grace offered by his crucifixion, upon his power through his resurrection, upon his ascended rule and reign as he sits upon his throne of grace while having an expectation of the hope of his return. Hope being a certain and assured trust in his coming, we just don't know when, and we don't know all the details how. I think that this is by design, just like with his first coming, so that our eyes and our focus is on Jesus and not on peripherals. Not on, you know, if we look at our side view mirror and just stare at it, we're going to run off the road. We're in the rear view mirror. Or look at the signs on the road. Hey, look, look how many moose are killed. And you just keep looking at the sign. You're going to run into a moose or you're going to run off the road. But if your eyes are on Jesus, who's the way, the truth, and the life, then you'll know when he's coming. You'll see him because our focus and attention is on him. And I believe all these difficulties are by design, by God's sovereign, gracious, blessed design. He has made it that way so that, hey, these folks need all the help they can get because their eyes want to wander. Their feet want to move to the left and to the right. We need to do something to keep them going straight. And this is the way. It's so confusing. 
that even this is what they're doing because we talked about the modernists. I know I've gone a little bit way too late, but I do want to mention as far as this full preterism, it, what it, preterist comes from uh, preter, which is a Latin word which means past. And um, it's a prefix denoting something that's past or something that's beyond. And there's two schools, partial preterism, which the amillennials and postmillennials actually use. Some things are past, some things are not. But full preterism means that it's all taken place. It's all taken place. And Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 to 18 tells us that it hasn't. Remember, uh, Paul addresses to Timothy, uh, Hymenus and Philetus, that these are two guys that said the resurrection has already come. And he said, these guys, these guys are way off base. The resurrection hasn't happened yet. And uh, this is what full preterism does. There are some that say, well, you just you don't have a physical body. You just, when you die, you go to be with the Lord, and that's it. Some of them aren't even saying that. That there's, they're basically Christian, quote-unquote, Christian atheists. that says that you live the best life you can on this world, and then after it's done, it's done. That doesn't sound like very hopeful stuff to me. But, but postmodernism has brought this about because modernism, which liberalized the Bible, has said, well, this might be viable since it's all since it's all spiritual nothingness then let it be all past and we'll just try to live the best life we can for Jesus that sounds somewhat silly so since i uh took it 5 minutes beyond the half hour here and we're uh if you have any questions next week for this parentheses before we jump into anything please uh Yeah, I'm not going to throw it out for questions now, so let me go ahead and close it in prayer. Our most blessed and gracious Father in God, in Jesus' name and for His sake, we thank You, Lord, for the blessed truths that You've given us. I've hit our folks with a a big dose of just an overview of of what the end times are. I ask it, Lord, that we can keep our eyes on Jesus no matter how it turns out. Uh, In Jesus' name and for His sake, we do pray. Amen. I, I do want to mention this too. If you have a particular fondness for one of the views, it's okay. In this church, you you, you can have a, a a predilection toward one, and and not and shouldn't be shut down by your pastor at the very least. Then you can have a healthy and honest discussion about them, if you need to. <laughs>